Hi, everyone. My name is Greg, and welcome back to the podcast, My First Season. In this podcast, I interview travel writers and people who work for resorts, hotels, cruise ships, and airlines, and we'll talk about their experience in travel and tourism. I am very excited today for this guest who has been on before, but he will be the first commercial pilot I interview. I just, just so happens that I have worked with him before in uh, Columbus Isle in 99-2000, and I have worked with many GOs, ex-GOs that have gone on to become lawyers, but he is the only one that I know that became a commercial pilot. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show, first officer, commercial pilot for Frontier Airlines, Nick Margellos. Nick, how are you, sir? I'm great. How are you, Greg? Good, good. I am very excited because, you know, I always looked up to you in Club Ed, and I don't know if you know this, but I've always revered pilots, so I'm an even bigger super fan of yours because of what you become. So I'm very excited that you agreed to come on and tell us basically how it is that you become a commercial pilot. And if you can take me back to when, is this the type of thing you always thought about when you're younger, but never thought you could do it, or you always knew you were going to do it? Like when did you first take hold? Necessarily something that I was planning, you know, that I thought about all my life. Uh, My mom worked for an airline for Cafe Pacific as a reservations. So I traveled a lot when I was a kid. I don't think I had a, a yearning desire to be a pilot. I came across, so back in, the, the history behind becoming the, a pilot was uh, both Veronica and I were working for, you know, Cirque du Soleil type shows. And we, uh, we wanted to be able to potentially move out of Las Vegas and maybe back up to Vancouver, maybe somewhere else. And since there's not a lot of Cirque du Soleil water shows around the world, I wanted to think of a different career path to go. And I I came across an article, and this is back in 2013, uh, an article about a pilot shortage coming up. And uh, I started reading into it. The FAA keeps a lot of statistics and numbers about uh, pilots and what level pilots there are. And they, they're projecting that over the next uh, over the next 10 years and, and beyond that more pilots are going to be retiring than getting hired and there will be more pilot jobs. So it was a really good field to, to go into. Uh, I, I liked a lot of aspects about it. I liked you know, being able to travel a lot, having a you know, different environment, you know, a nice view out the window, things like that. Uh, and after I'd done a whole bunch of research, I really got sold on the idea of becoming a pilot. Did you have to get Veronica's blessing or was she just like pushing you from day one? Like, yes, you should do it. Uh, if you, this is what you really want, uh, please go ahead. Um, she's always been really supportive. So I think she, she saw how much I wanted to do it. And so she just jumped on board and was behind me. Uh, I think she liked the idea after I kind of presented my case to her about it. Uh, she was very supportive. I had different levels of support from family. Uh, I had some who, my mom who worked for an airline, loved the idea. In fact, I think she sort of claims that it was her suggestion, you know, and then, you know, going through the spectrum to other members of my family who knew pilots. And uh, the, the career path of a pilot can sometimes be up and down. It can, it can have, you know, good moments where like now there's a lot of opportunity and then it can have bad moments like after September 11th where, you know, the, the industry contracts a little bit. So 
I had mixed result, uh, mixed results from my family, but overall, everyone was very supportive. So. so when you decide to become a pilot, now, were you thinking Ollie's like the big planes commercial? I mean, I guess you have to start off small. So what, so what's the, what's the first step like when on the road to becoming a pilot? Like what do you have to do? Obviously you take lessons, but is there, do you need some kind of courses to take? Uh, yeah, it's, there's a few different avenues you can take. So Obviously, it's good to know where you want to end up, and and the airlines is is where I wanted to end up. But I didn't want to, you know, box myself into that. There's private jets, there's cargo, there's you know a few different avenues you can go. But the the airline industry is definitely the most popular, profitable, uh, advantageous to go into. So that was my target when I began, and so I, I did some research about where you can learn. Now, there are universities that offer degrees in aviation, but that would have taken multiple years to get through. And then uh, there's a couple of organizations, a couple of flight schools across the U.S. that specialize in taking people from scratch, like I was, all the way up to uh, commercial pilot. And, uh, and so I found a school here in uh, Las Vegas and attended that. And it was a six-month course and in that time, you become a private pilot, which is your first step when you're flying Cessnas, uh, you know, and then uh, you get your instrument rating, you get uh, your commercial li- uh, license after you've gained enough hours and experience, and then uh, you become a, a flight instructor. And, uh, and that's a, a great way to build time. So you start from scratch. And it's literally your first lesson is going out and the instructor is sitting there in the Cessna next to you. You know, he lets you take the controls for a little and then he brings you in for a landing. And, you know, as time goes on, you know, you learn more and more until you've gotten to the point of, of, uh, of being independent enough that you can solo and then eventually uh, go and do a, what we call a check ride and get your private pilot license. Once you've uh, accumulated 250 hours of flying, then you become a commercial pilot or you can become a commercial pilot. You have to pass another check ride or a test. And then uh, in order to work for the airlines, you have to have 1500 hours. So that 1500 hours, usually you accumulate either by finding a small commercial operation or by being a flight instructor. And I chose the flight instructor route. How hard was the classroom stuff? Like you're learning, uh, I guess, approach vectors. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, it sounds all complicated to me and hard. So was it really hard or you just, you're just on, on top of being good looking. You're one of those smart guys too. Well, thanks, Greg. You're welcome. No, I will say it was probably the hardest thing I've done in my life to, to do a, a quick, I don't want to say quick, uh, to do a compacted course like uh, I did at this flight school called ATP Flight Schools. It, uh, you're studying every day, hours a day, and you know, you're learning, you start off just learning the general knowledge, you know, uh, what altitudes you can fly at, what are the do's and the don'ts, the rules, the safety procedures. What I found interesting was that there's a lot of parallels from the scuba world to the flight world. And I know that sounds weird, but the uh, level of safety that you, you know, that you are always trying to achieve, you know, the redundancy in, in, in certain safety measures, you know, the, the rules and the regulations that you have to follow 
uh, is very similar to the way, uh, you know, scuba divers learn all the rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, uh, and then go and do a test. So there was a certain uh, comfort I felt in, in learning all of this because I feel like it, it matched a little bit of learning the scuba world, obviously, to a different degree. You, you learn that and you learn the proficiency of the aircraft. You have to learn what it can do, what it can't do. You learn all about its systems. You have to learn how to recover the plane if it, if it got into a stall. So you practice different types of stalls, meaning when you lose lift for the plane. So imagine just taking that plane and slowing it down to the point where it just wants to drop. You take it to that point, allow it to drop, and then you learn how to recover. And, uh, and so you go through a lot of these maneuvers, these procedures, uh, and then once you're proficient enough and doing it every day at this school, you get proficient quite quickly. Uh, you go and you do what we call a check ride. Uh, the check ride is basically an examiner from the FAA comes and uh, they do a two part exam. So, well, three, you do a written part beforehand. Uh, as long as you pass with 70%, then you're able to go on and do the oral examination, which is essentially just an examiner sitting there and grilling you and asking you a lot of questions about, uh, about all the different aspects of, of flying and the, the equipment and safety procedures, all these types of things for about anywhere from like two to four hours. And then after that, if you pass, then you get to go out into the plane and you have about 20 or 25 tasks that you have to be able to do, stalling the plane, showing that you can land in wind, showing that you can, you know, land on a short field, showing that you can do, you know, uh, proper turns, climb outs, descents, all these different uh, aspects and maneuvers that come with flying. And if you pass that, then you get your private pilot license. I'm sure you remember it, but were you nervous when you landed for the first time? I mean, is that the hardest thing? Um, it's it's tricky. I don't think I was, I don't think I was, uh, I mean, you're always nervous when you're doing something new, especially when you're, you know, in a small little Cessna coming in for a landing for the first time. But I had a good relationship with my flight instructor. I had a lot of confidence in him. So I knew that if, if I was doing something wrong, that he would be there to step in. I think the the biggest uh, the the biggest uh, point is when you do your first solo. So during your private pilot, you have to go and and do about ten hours worth of flying by yourself, just to show that you can uh, you can do it. And you just start off by flying, you know, a few laps uh, around the airport, just to show that you can do the landings, and then you come back in. And it was a very surreal the first time you're sitting in the cockpit uh, of the plane by yourself with no instructor there and knowing that you're 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 taking care of it all. But uh, it passes quick. You have uh, a lot of work. You got tasks that you got to accomplish. Talking on the radio, you know, making sure that you're configured for your your landings. And so after a little bit, that nervousness goes away, and it's just excitement and it gives you a nice boost of confidence. Okay, side question. Hollywood tells us that in movies and TV, someone without any flight training, okay, and without any time in a simulator could land a plane, whether it's, a, you know, a, a Boeing, whatever, or, a, a, you know, a Cessna, like you mentioned. So is it possible for someone who's never trained, never took lessons, and I'm talking simulator, whether it's on a home computer or not, is it possible for someone to get talked into landing a plane? 
<laughs> it's a complicated question. Okay. Uh, if you were up in a Cessna, it's a much simpler plane. I think you'd be able to, if someone would be able to talk you to get onto the ground. Uh, really? Some of the larger planes, uh, their cockpits are a lot more complicated. Uh, I remember watching a video of this German instructor who talked his girlfriend into going into a, um, an Airbus flight simulator, and he did this exact experiment. And he explained to her what she needed to know in the cockpit, how to program things, how to put in the flaps and all of that. And they were able to accomplish it. Uh, it took a long time. It wasn't very Hollywood-esque where, you know, they have, you know, 30 seconds or a minute, they're coming in and, you know, they pull the flaps out and, you know, the person lands the plane. I think they spent about an hour talking this, uh, him talking his girlfriend through it. She was able to land the plane because Airbuses have uh, auto landing functions, but she said it was probably the most stressful thing that she's ever done in her life and she would never ever allow her boyfriend to talk her into doing it again. So yes, it's possible but it's complicated. <laughs> did, you, did you say Airbus has like um, automatic landing? Is that what you said? Yes. That, yeah, Airbus that. does have an auto land feature. So is that, is that only on Airbus? I think the larger Boeing planes might have it as well. Uh, I'm not oh. 100% sure, but uh, oh, Airbus. I didn't, I didn't know that. When did that come into effect? Um, well, it's, it's been there as long as I've been flying. Really? Okay. I mean, we all know there's automatic pilot and all that, but I didn't know that. I thought the pilot, that's the one thing he had to do was be there to land the plane, you know? Well, generally we do. The auto land is for when the visibility gets so low that uh, the, the plane, you know, uh, that the pilot won't have their reaction time, you know, when we're literally looking at 300 feet of horizontal visibility and you're coming in at 150 miles an hour, you don't have the reaction time to the runway. So we have the auto land feature for that. So I would say that at 90, 99% of the time when you're in a plane, it is the pilots that are doing the landing, but we do have the ability to program in an auto land function. So. Okay. Very interesting. And I think I recall, I don't know if you told me this or you wrote it somewhere. So um, when you did your six months at this flight school, was one of your final tests, if not the final test, you and a, a pilot, um, you know, co-pilot buddy had to fly from the east to west coast. Was that part of the um, final exam or no? It wasn't part of the final exam. It was actually a, a pretty enjoyable time. So once you get your private pilot license, you're probably between 40 to 60 hours of experience. And then we did our instrument. And so that was probably another 40 or 50 hours. So we were we were up at about uh, 110, 120 hours. We'd also gotten our multi-engine. So we flew a twin uh, twin engine plane. And uh, we had to get up to 250 hours in order to be able to do our commercial exam. So we do what we call a, a time building and we partner up with somebody else. And uh, and we, we an ATP will assign us airports and we try to act like commercial pilots where we, you know, plan our, our route, we file a flight plan with the FAA and, and, and do that. And uh, we spent about 75 hours getting to just fly a plane around uh, across the country. We went all the way to Mississippi and back and uh, a whole bunch of airports in between. And it was just for the purpose of uh, building our time up so that we can qualify for the commercial check ride. Did you get it all on that? 
trip or no, it took a few times to do that? Uh, that one, it took about 75 hours. And then the rest of the time was uh, dedicated towards preparing and training for the commercial check ride. Okay. So yes, you were also a scuba instructor in Club Med and used to logging dives. So is logging hours in a plane the same way? How, do, how does that uh, work? It is. It's, uh, you, you keep a log book. We have, you can either have it in a, a paper version, like a book, or uh, nowadays there's a electronic log book. So you just go on a, uh, on a computer program and, and file it there. But you file the different types of flying that you do. So sometimes you're flying at night. And so you'll fly, you know, or you'll file a night flight time. Sometimes you're going across country and we define cross country as going to an airport 50 miles away or more. So when you do do that, you log cross country time. And these are the types of um, categories of, of, of your hours that airlines will look at down the road because they want to know that, you know, you're not just flying, you know, traffic pattern, like flying in circles around your airport but you're actually going to other airports and you have experience being able to, you know, file flight plans and go to other, other airports or other States or other cities um, that you can fly at night, that you're comfortable with that, that you can fly in clouds in, in instrument conditions solely by reference to your instruments. So you log all of these different types of time in your logbook to show that you're gaining that kind of experience. Just like a night dive is probably, you know, more exciting than a day dive. So is landing your first time at night just as uh, thrilling? Or? It is interesting. Uh, you have different illusions at night. Uh, so sometimes the lights uh, on the horizon can be a little angled. It'll give you a disorientation. Coming in, uh, you know, for the runway lights, it's it can be a little disorienting. So you have to be a little bit more on your game when you're landing at night. But it is thrilling. Uh, it's really beautiful and serene. You know, being up in the air and uh, and seeing everything at night, it's you know it's it is it's very enjoyable. I, I do enjoy flying at night. It's very peaceful. So let's say a difference in speed, if any. So if you're taking off on a runway in a Cessna or one of the larger planes that you fly, is there a, a difference in speed that you have to attain to achieve lift, uh, or is it based on weight, or is it roughly the same speed? Well, every, every plane will have different speeds for the different maneuvers, takeoffs, landings, uh, and configurations. And yeah, you, you're going a, a lot faster when you're in, a, in an Airbus as compared to a Cessna. For a Cessna, you're going about 55, 60 miles an hour for when, you, when you've achieved enough lift and you, you can take off. For the Airbus, it's probably up at about anywhere from about 150 to 180 miles an hour, depending on the weight and the density altitude uh, and such things. So we calculate all of that out before we go, uh, we go flying in order to make sure that we know exactly the speeds we should be uh, doing for when we take off and land. So when you start looking to become a commercial pilot, what's the uh, application process like, or what are the next steps involved for that? So uh, for a commercial pilot, which is uh, at a, about 250 hours, you have a couple of choices. Uh, you can become a flight instructor, which is what I did, or you can go and find uh, some smaller commercial operations where you're flying planes of less than 20 people. For, for me, the flight instructor was great because I could set up my own schedule. I could have time with my family when I wanted to be with my family, and then I could have time flying uh, when I wanted to try to build that time. So it gave me a nice, flexible schedule. And truthfully, I love teaching too. You know, I, I taught diving, I taught 
skiing and snowboarding and uh, I've always enjoyed teaching, you know, watching students break through. So uh, I ended up choosing that route uh, to build that time. Once it took me about a year and a half to build up my time to get up to 1500 hours. Once I got to 1500 hours or probably even a little before that, that was the process, which I'm guessing you're asking is uh, applying to uh, the different airlines. But you're in, sorry, you, but you're instructing on, on smaller planes, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was, yeah. Only on. I was flying mostly Cessnas and uh, a couple of uh, Piper uh, low wing planes. Okay. So yeah. So you got your hours, and then. So then, then there's uh, the the next step is uh, uh, the entry level trying to get into the airlines is the regional airlines. So you have companies like American Eagle, SkyWest who typically fly for all the, the major and legacy airlines, but, uh, but they fly a lot of the little routes and they fly planes of between 50 to 70 passengers. So I applied, uh, I applied to a company called GoJet. GoJet flies, uh, flies for United and for Delta. So I would fly under the banner of United or Delta with them. Uh, they were the airline I wanted to go to. I knew somebody that was there and they said that it was, uh, a, a good place. You could get a lot of hours and fly, fly as much as you wanted. And it was, uh, there were a lot of favorable conditions for me for that. So I applied to them and because of the, the pilot shortage, they hired me on the spot. Uh, right now, the regional airlines are dying for pilots. And so once somebody has the qualifying hours, it's, uh, you know, they're, you'll, you'll get multiple job offers. Now, you could go back to 10 years ago or 15 years ago and the regional airlines were a lot pickier as far as being able to, you know, uh, you know, find someone who had maybe 3000 hours or 4000 hours. Nowadays, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for the people that are, are, you know, right around that 1500 hours. So, so you were, so then you were hired. And um, so then obviously you start have the training, on bigger planes. So what was the first, I guess, uh, what series or whatever was the first large plane that you started learning? So I learned, uh, they flew the uh, Bombardier, the CRJs, the uh, Canada, Canada Regional Jets, the 700 and 900 model, which held about 70 or 80 people. So it's, uh, it's an interesting process. So we all show up on day one and uh, we have to do uh, about five or six weeks of ground school. So we're, we're just sitting in a class all day, every day, going over all the different systems of the plane, the company, uh, the rules and regulations of being an airline pilot. So it's pretty intensive. You're, you, uh, you're, you know, you're going to school every day for like eight hours. You go home or you go back. Uh, we were in St. Louis and uh, they had us uh, staying in, all in a hotel together. So we would all study at night together and quiz each other and, and practice because uh, the, the testing, uh, you know, they, they, they do a lot of regular testing to ensure you're learning everything. And then uh, after the five or six weeks, uh, you go into a flight simulator. And these are those really cool flight simulators, you know, that are suspended about 15, 20 feet and they have the hydraulics. They're, you know, worth about like $30 million each. And uh, it's an exact replica of the cockpit. And you go and you, 
you know, you, you spend about four hours between you and a, and a partner, four hours a day for, you know, the next uh, few weeks after that, practicing all the, the, you know, mundane things like just doing regular takeoffs and landings to recovering from stalls or, you know, traffic avoidance and all of that. And, and uh, you know, they throw quite a gauntlet at you, you know, an engine out if you have an engine failure, an engine failure while you're taking off, an engine failure while you're landing, whether you're at high altitude, low altitude, and, you know, you have to practice, you have these complex flows of, uh, that you have to be able to, uh, to go through, you know, of turning different things on, turning different things off, understanding how the systems interact with each other. So it's very intensive and it's a, a little overwhelming when you're coming from a small plane, but they know that you're coming from a small plane. So they cater the, the learning process towards uh, somebody who's coming out of the, you know, flight instructor field or small aircraft field into uh, flying these jets for the first time. So when you're in the uh, simulator and obviously they're yeah, they're throwing different scenarios at you to see how you'll handle them. Does the uh, airline have a, a version of the Kobayashi Maru maneuver like in Star Trek, this unwinnable situation, or uh, it's just all standard? Um, they, they don't have a, a Kobayashi Maru as far as an unwinnable situation. You are judged the entire time you're in there. And if you, you're not allowed to crash the simulator. So you can't just be, you know, flying along going, ah, this is dumb and, and, you know, do something, you know, outrageous. You're judged constantly on everything you do. So they're not going to put you in a situation where, you know, you're going to, to, you know, necessarily crash, but they'll, they'll keep pushing your, your situations to the most difficult point. So for us, the most difficult situation when you're flying is what we call a V1 cut. V1 is the speed where we have enough lift that we can take off. Now, the way all commercial aircraft are designed is that you can accomplish everything with one engine that you can with two. Obviously, you don't have as much lift, but you know, you or as much thrust, but you can climb out uh, with one engine and you can, uh, you know, climb up, level off, come in and land with just one engine. And so we spend a lot of time training that. But the most critical time, the time when you're at your slowest speed and most vulnerable to losing control of the plane is right when you rotate to take off. So that in itself is basically our Kobayashi Maru, where it takes you to the brink and you've got to work really hard with your rudder pedals to make sure that your plane stays coordinated or straight. Uh, you've got to make sure that you know you're you're nosing up so you're getting away from the ground, but you're not uh, nosing, uh, pulling the nose up so much that you're stalling the plane. So you have a lot of these vulnerabilities that are very close to the flight, on, you know, to pushing you to that flight envelope uh, right at takeoff. So that's kind of like our, our testing point. That's uh, the hardest, typically the hardest maneuver that we have to accomplish. Okay, to get back to just for a moment to that German pilot that uh, put his girlfriend in the simulator. Okay, not, not to diminish her accomplishment, but do you think that was a simulator? I, I'd like to think that if I was put in that situation, it would be uh, much more intensified in a real cockpit uh, with a plane 30, 40,000 feet in the air. Do you agree or, or no? No, uh, 
the simulators are incredibly realistic. You can add turbulence, you can add uh, different, all the different con conditions that you would have in a real plane and it reacts the same way. What's, what's really interesting about the simulators is that once we've finished our, all of our simulator training and we do our check ride. So when, with GoJet, I did my five or six weeks of class and my few weeks in the simulator we went, uh, we do our check ride in the simulator. You know, they're not going to pay to, you know, gas up a plane and have you doing laps in the traffic pattern and, and, you know, doing all these maneuvers in a real plane. So when you do your check ride, you do it in the simulator and you get uh, your certification, you get your, uh, your license for that plane in the simulator. The first time you actually fly the plane for real, you're already certified to fly that plane. You just have never done it yet. <laughs> so once you go out onto the line and you fly with a captain, that's going to be the first time that you're actually flying that jet in real life, even though you've already got your certification for it. Okay. Interesting. And now what's the, or how long I should say is your, does it take to do your pre-flight um, check uh, which is, I guess, I don't know if you, if you go out and use a binder for this and it has all the steps, uh, how, but how long does that take to, to do? It doesn't take as long as you would think. So, you know, it, it takes a village to, you know, to raise a kid. It takes a, a village to, you know, keep a plane, uh, an airplane running. So every time we land at an airport, a mechanic comes and does a walk around and checks for things. Every pilot or every group of pilots, so either the first officer or the captain, will go and do an initial walk around. So my typical routine, I'll show up at the plane, I'll look through the maintenance logbook to see if there's any irregularities that I need to be looking for or anything that I need to check up on. So that usually takes me five or 10 minutes. Uh, I go out and then we do a walk around. And in the airline industry, we have what we call flows, which is basically just a, a sequence of a sequence of steps that you take, be it uh, a flow for, you know, hitting a few switches in a row, or in this case, going and walking around. So, so I go down, I, I start at the, at the nose and I, I do a full walk around of the entire plane. I'm checking all the, all the, uh, you know, the, the ports for the instruments. Uh, I'm checking the, the landing gears, the engines, all that. I'm not opening up engines, but I'm, taking a look at it, uh, you know, to see if I can find any irregularities or anything of note. And so that usually takes me about 10 minutes just to go and do a nice thorough walk around of the plane. And then when, once we're done, once I'm done that, we'll come into the cockpit. The captain will have also verified all of this stuff uh, through the maintenance logbook. Uh, and then we'll prepare the plane. So we have a, a, a flight release uh, that, that gives us everything from, you know, uh, what, what our route is going to be. Uh, what the weather is like, any uh, notable, uh, any any notable uh, exceptions at the airport that we're landing at or or taking off from, like a closed runway or closed taxiways, things like that. So we both individually go through it and talk about it, and then we program in the 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 route, and uh, then we brief it, and uh, we're ready to go. What, so with your time with GoJet was over, so did. Was there another airline in between the, your current one, Frontier, and when you left GoJet? No, I uh, I ended up uh, staying at GoJet about two or two and a half years. And in the airline industry, it's always best to be trying to get to where you want to go. 
me, I started flying when I was 37. So I was entering, uh, entering at a lot older than, you know, many of than many uh, other pilots. So my ambition wasn't necessarily to go to United or Delta and be pilot 15,462 on the list. I wanted to find a, a smaller but major airline where I would have uh, the ability to upgrade to captain, where I'd have the ability to be home-based uh, in Las Vegas. And uh, there were a few airlines that fit that criteria and Frontier was one of them. I put in to, to do an interview. I, I ended up having a great interview. I uh, you know showed, showed everything that I had. They put you through some scenarios of uh, just to see how you'll react to you know different conditions and stuff and uh, they were really happy with me so they they hired me on and Frontier for me is my forever airline that's the one that I want to work at it's growing rapidly the planes are new they're great it's a it's a great company and a lot of great people so uh, at the beginning I mentioned you were a first officer so what is the uh, next step to captain is it a matter of hours flown uh, it's seniority so it really once you enter the airline you know you go to the bottom of the seniority list and seniority is everything in the airline industry so even if uh, someone who had you know 15 20 000 hours of flying came to frontier they would be below me in the seniority and i would have the chance to upgrade to captain before them because i've been with the company longer so it essentially uh, comes down to supply and demand uh you know the uh uh, chief pilot will look and see how many captains he needs for the different bases, how many first officers, you know, the company will hire, hire people in, but they only hire people as a first officer, which basically just means that you're, you know, you're in the right seat as opposed to the left seat. Uh, you still have all the same duties as far as uh, you fly half the time and then the other half you're the pilot monitoring and doing the radios and stuff. So you still get to fly all the time, but the responsibility of the flight and, and, and the passengers, everything falls onto the captain, which is why he earns the captain's pay. And uh, the first officer is more like a captain in training. Now, are captains uh, asked to make those announcements during a flight or are they, each captain is different? Uh, you know, to quote the um, uh, famous stand-up comedian, he's like, I don't, knock, I don't knock on the cockpit door and tell you when I'm eating the peanuts. So is there a reason why um, some captains or are they just required to keep mentioning if you look out your the right window you'll we're flying over grand canyon so is that just something each captain does on their own or it's part of the airline policy well it it is airline policy but what we've found is that passengers prefer to be informed so typically the captain will make an announcement before we leave just to say what altitude we'll be flying how long if there's any you know turbulence or or any conditions that the passengers you know need to know about and remind them of the fast and seat belt sign and all of that but it's a nice means to introduce uh themselves and then uh and then as well uh typically we we both will make uh whoever's the pilot monitoring will make an announcement about 30 minutes out from the airport just to give people a heads up that we'll be turning the fast and seatbelt sign on and beginning our descent and stuff. So it, it is a company policy. It's, air, I mean, it's uh, industry-wide, all airlines do it. And it's just that, you know, if it does annoy the odd person, the majority of the people like to hear the captain or one of the pilots come on and 
tell them what's going on. So, okay, with your time in Club Med, mine as well. We've we've come across our share of dumb questions asked to us, and I'm sure you've <laughs> you could probably talk uh, very long about dumb questions asked to you in Club Med. So, probably right in guessing that there are similar dumb questions <laughs> asked to pilots or first officers. Am I correct so far? Yeah. Yeah. Or- you are correct. There are okay. Uh, there so are, are things I've heard from some passengers. Could you give us an example? Obviously, don't don't have to name anyone or nationality, but I'm just curious if uh, what if you can give me an example of uh, is turbulence something to do with it? Or I mean, I don't. I'm only guessing at what, but I'm sure you have your share <laughs> of dumb questions asked. So we did. We did have a passenger. This was like about a a month or two ago who told one of the flight attendants that Frontier needs to pay their bills more because we need to pay for the routes in the air that don't have turbulence like Delta does, uh, which I found pretty funny. But I think probably one of the funniest stories I had was actually when I was still with Goja. We, uh, we left Denver and uh, we were up probably about climbing through 20, 25,000 feet. And uh, the sensor on our cargo door went off. Now. It's not uncommon. The cargo area is pressurized. And a lot of times it's just a sensor. But we went through our normal steps of checking. And it turned out that uh, we were very slowly depressurizing. Not unmanageable. Uh, but, you know, we, our policy, of course, you know, we're going to turn around because the, the cargo door, the hatch wasn't closed properly and the, the handle had popped. Not really a big deal, but we explained to our passengers we're going to go turn around because we, we do have, uh, you know, we, we do have this slow depressurization. So we're heading back down and we did a normal landing and pulled up to the gate. And we explained to everyone, we just want to have maintenance come and check and make sure that there's nothing wrong with the handle before we board everybody again and go fly. And uh, we had this one, I had this one passenger, I was standing at the door and, you know, answering any questions if anyone had one. And this one, one guy came up, he's an older gentleman, and uh, had the best opening line I've ever heard in my life. He walks up to me and he goes, look, I'm a pilot. I'm not a professional pilot like you, but, and I was like, oh, here we go. He was like, what you should have just done is dropped down to 12,000 feet and flown us the rest of the way there. And so I was trying to explain to him, you know. <laughs> Fuel, you know, we burn fuel more. We haven't calculated it for that, but he was so sure that he was right, that he was telling us that he was right. But after, after about a minute or two, I was like, okay, okay, if that's what you think, and I didn't really have an answer. And and so every now and then you come across the odd people who are a little more confident in their opinion than perhaps they should be. <laughs> okay, uh, just to get back to this uh, turbulence story. So <laughs> there's no amount of money. Money is not an equation when it comes to turbulence. Like Turbulence will hit you when it wants to. It doesn't mean that um, Delta could afford a better <laughs> route by flying above it, correct? There's no premium routes in the air. Okay. We all fly the, yep. the same places. We all fly along <laughs> the same routes as we're coming into airports. We all do our best to avoid turbulence. And it just, uh, it sometimes happens that sometimes we have turbulence, sometimes we don't. We do our best to, to avoid it or minimize it, but there's no difference between a Delta flight coming in and, and having turbulence and Frontier coming in and having turbulence. It's the same tur- turbulence. All right. Besides Top Gun, because that's too easy, do you have a favorite airplane movie? like Air Force One or whatever. Is there a movie that you enjoy that deals um, with flying? I did, uh, I, I did really enjoy Sully. Okay, yeah. Because that's the plane that I fly. So 
I enjoyed watching how, uh, how, you know, he accomplished, uh, everything that he did. So I found that interesting. You know, you have flight with Denzel Washington, which we all joke would joke, uh, that is the most unrealistic movie only for the fact that in the first few minutes of the, of the movie, it's raining and Denzel Washington, who's the captain was doing the walk around of the plane of which every first officer would say, there's not a chance in hell that captain would go and do the walk around of the plane when it's raining, he'd make the first officer do it. So we knew that was unrealistic. <laughs> okay. But ironically, what I, the, what I enjoy the most is not necessarily movies, but it's the, the shows like when planes crash or air disasters and, and Veronica likes watching them too. Yeah, me too. I, I didn't, I wasn't going to bring that up, but since you did, yeah, I've been fascinated with that show. Um, Mayday and all and whatnot. Yeah. So yeah, okay. I, I watch all those shows and I find them very interesting and, and intriguing as to how, you know, some of these pilots got to the point of where you know they they kept making poor decisions until they got to the point where something happened and so for me as as most pilots in our industry you know we strive to have you know the perfect career you know the the career where you know we're we're doing everything right we're keeping our passengers safe i mean it, it it's really incredible how you know the high level that uh pilots keep themselves at for things like this but i find for me the most enjoyable thing is is believe it or not, is watching those shows. Cause I, I just, I learned so much from watching what has happened and uh, you know, and so it helps me going forward with better decision-making. Well, I was going to ask you because I believe by watching a show on Mayday, I think a, a Canadian pilot did this. So I was going to ask you, uh, so let's just say you lose both engines. Can you glide whatever a CRJ or, or a larger plane down from that altitude? Because I think I think there was only one Canadian pilot that did that and everyone else they put in a simulator, the same conditions crash. So, but is, is that a very rare occurrence where you can just glide or I don't know, a no fuel? You can like, glide. You can. Uh, the planes and they're, they're very amazingly designed, uh, but you can glide uh, as uh, all size of planes. Uh, you just have to obviously maintain a certain level of speed to keep the lift on the, on the wings. So it is possible. But uh, the chance of like a dual engine failure like that is almost non-existent. So yeah, yeah. more often than not, we, we typically practice in the simulator with single engine uh, maneuvers. But we do get a chance to, to see what it's like to lose, say, both of our engines up at altitude and then re get them restarted. So we have the ability sometimes, you know, I mean, if they were in the unlikely event to, to go out, a lot of times you can actually restart the engines and they have different procedures. So we practice those maneuvers. I can't say that I've practiced trying to land a plane, land one of the big planes by gliding in like that, but it is possible. In the last two weeks, we've had two multi-billionaires go to space. So if you had the money and Veronica let you, <laughs> would you, would you go? Would you do that oh, yeah. trip? Absolutely. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You'd probably rather be on the flying side of it, but uh, you would go as a passenger? <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, it's neat. I, uh, you know, we always, we talk about it on the planes uh, amongst the, the flight crews and, and it is, it's something, it's exciting because, you know, the, the advent of commercial, of commercial space flight is, uh, is neat. It's intriguing. I don't think I would necessarily leave Frontier to go work for uh, Virgin Galactic or something like that. Uh, I think it would be too much uncertainty with that market, but 
if I had the opportunity to go on one of the planes, even just as a passenger, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's uh, to get up to the edge of space would be pretty, pretty cool. It would, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd probably go too. <laughs> But I don't have to worry about that because I don't have 250,000 U.S. lying around. So I'm good. No, no. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, wow, Nick, uh, you you uh, opened a lot of eyes here, especially mine, because a lot I didn't know about the industry. So I really want to thank you for coming on. Um, did I, if I forgot anything, please tell me now. There's something you wanted to say. Please, please do mention it because uh, uh, this has been exciting. No, I, You're my first pilot. <laughs> I'd encourage people who are interested in it to, to get into the industry. It's still a, a really good industry to get into. It's a big commitment and it takes a, it takes a little to get to the point where you're able to, you know, fly those big planes. But for me, it's the, it's the greatest office in the world. I, I try to take pictures with my, you know, with my phone and, and stuff, but none of it can do justice. You know, I've had a chance to see things like uh, a launch out of Cape Canaveral as we were flying by, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. You see all types of storms, you see all types of, you know, sunrises, sunsets, uh, just, I mean, it, it's really an incredible environment to, to, to get to be in. And, you know, from a commercial standpoint, it's, for me, I love the job. It's having the chance to you know, to be out there, to have that different environment, uh, to not be controlled by a boss. You know, so many jobs, you have a boss looming over your shoulder. I always joke that my goal is that after, you know, 25 years, I'll walk into the chief pilot's office with my, my you know, two-week uh, two notice and he'll look up and be like, do you work here? <laughs> because we never see our bosses except for when we go in, you know, once or twice a year for our ground training. So we have our independence, you know, we, we get the travel benefits. So it, it's really nice. And then for people who just want to go and, and try flying, I really, really encourage everyone just to go out to a, a local airport and go to a local flight school and ask to do a, an intro flight, an introductory flight. So oftentimes you can go, go up in a plane for 30 or 40 minutes and, you know, it's maybe a hundred bucks and they'll take you up and give you a chance to you know, take the yoke and uh, to fly it a little bit. And, and uh, you know, he'll, they'll show you the plane, they'll do some turns for you, stuff like that. And it might be something that you want to try, even if you just go to the level of getting your private pilot license and get out and fly once in a while. The, the aviation world is, a, is an incredible world. There's a, a certain freedom that comes with being up at altitude and you know, not having a, a traffic jam of cars around you and just being able to, you know, glide around and look at the views, all that. So whether your interest is just to go up and try an intro flight or if it's something like a, a new career, you just got to get out and you got to do it. It's hard work, but it's so worth it. So there you have it from the man himself. I want to thank first officer Nick Margellos today for taking the time to talk to us. Really, really appreciate it, Nick. I'm uh, proud of you. Well, more than you know. So uh, it's, uh, I'm glad I can say I know you <laughs> and I worked with you because I'm uh, very proud of you for obtaining pilot Thanks, and yeah. cannot You're wait till you are captain, sir. We have to salute you now. That's fine. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, that was Nick Margellis and we'll see you all next week. Bye.